Hey everyone, welcome to The Cam Show. I'm your host, Cameron, and this week we're going to talk about quantum computing with Dr. Benjamin Villalonga. Also, for those of you who've been listening way back since June, I really, really appreciate your support. It means a lot to me that people actually find these episodes interesting, and I'm so glad that a lot of you are learning along with me about these various fields of research and just a lot more about science and technology. And in the new year, I really look forward to learning a lot more about these fields. So I hope you enjoy this episode, and I hope you enjoy the next few that are coming. Dr. Benjamin Villalonga is a physicist currently working at Google's Quantum AI team. He completed his master's in theoretical physics at the Universidad Complutense of Madrid in Spain and his PhD in the simulation of quantum condensed matter systems at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. During his PhD, Dr. Villalonga did an internship at NASA's Quantum Computing Group as well as Google's Quantum AI team where he studied the development of classical algorithms for the simulation of quantum systems. And with that, let's get into the interview. Hello, Dr. Villalonga. Uh, how are you? Great. How have you been? I've been doing well. Um, it's been pretty hectic during quarantine. What about you? It's been a very special year. And yeah, in my case, I started a new job completely remotely. So still, I haven't gone to the office. Uh, I actually haven't moved to, to Los Angeles, where I'll be working. So yeah, it's been mm-hmm. pretty particular. But you know, I cannot complain. It's been pretty <laughs> nice on my side, actually. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So I guess let's start by getting to know you a little bit. What was your path to getting into quantum computing? So actually my path probably started not a, you know, a direct path into quantum computing not long ago, but uh, okay. So I, I studied undergrad in physics. So, you know, most people that come to quantum computing so far come from physics. So there is a lot of people coming from chemistry, from engineering, computer science, some people from math. In my case, it was from physics, like most of the people. But in my undergrad, I, I had no idea what quantum computing was. Actually, my second to last year, I took an introductory course on quantum computing without knowing what it was. I, I took that course and I found it very interesting. Then when I started grad school, I started some a master's in, in theoretical physics, not with quantum computing in mind. I remember what that was, but I, I was doing different things. Then I went to to the States, to the University of Illinois to study a PhD. And I did a PhD on related topics, but not exactly quantum computing. I worked mostly on, on the simulation of, of quantum systems, but for, for different kind of problems, not, not for quantum computers, but actually for the simulation of, of what is called strongly interacting systems. That is something that arises in, in many subfields of physics. And in particular, I was working on something called condensed matter. And, but that has so much math and so many of the problems you have to solve that are so close to quantum computing um, that I started going towards that path, towards that goal. And on my last two years of my PhD, I did two internships. The first one uh, at NASA, where there is a, a group with theorists that do research in quantum computing. Mm-hmm. And a second year uh, with Google also, which has a, a very nice group on quantum computing. And, you know, eventually I started going more towards, uh, 
you know, following that path. And eventually, I I I, I am now a full time employee in the in Google in the quantum computing team. So it's been a, a long path and not always clearly towards quantum computing. But in the end, you realize that everything, in, many things you do in physics are very related to this field. So everything sort of uh, works out in, you know, you can do research in, in, in a very different field, but you still gain experience and, and computational uh, capabilities and, and you learn theory that is very useful for, for this field. That's really cool. Um, I, I found it really interesting that like all of the uh, the concepts in uh, general physics kind of apply to quantum physics. Not everything, but a lot of the current research in physics, if you go to grad school, if you do a PhD and you're interested in doing research, a lot of it is is using quantum physics. And, and eventually, in, the computational tools you're going to use to solve problems that arise in whatever you're studying or the theoretical tools um, are going to have a lot to do with what quantum computers are trying to be best at. So, so you learn a lot about, um, about the field in general without knowing it. Of course, if you, start, if you start to be more focused on quantum computing, you'll tackle more concrete problems on the field. But mm -hmm. if you do research on something very different, you might actually be learning about this without knowing it. That's pretty cool. So I guess let me ask you, what is quantum computing? Um, okay, so we can we can start with a more of a historical approach, I guess. In the 80s, some people started having the idea that, and in particular, the most famous person that came up with this was Richard Feynman, um, that if, if nature at a fundamental level is it follows quantum physics, like the laws of quantum physics. Um, probably the day we can do engineering at that level, the day we have control over such uh, small systems and with good enough control, we can use those systems to, to process information. So right now when we use a laptop or a supercomputer, it doesn't matter how big it is, uh, it all follows some logic that we could describe with physics that we knew in the 19th century. In the 20th century, some new physics arose with different laws for, for systems that needed a, a more precise description that turned out to be systems at the microscopical level. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that with these laws, you know, describing those systems, if you can control them, you can manipulate information and process information in a completely new way. Following new logic, mathematically, this belongs to a completely new class of information processor that in principle can solve problems that otherwise you would not be able to solve efficiently. So, so quantum computers is still a promise. Uh, we, we are making the first steps towards having a quantum computer that is a machine that works with these new kind of logic that can solve problems that otherwise would be really, really complicated to solve. Um, and in order to do that, you not only have to think about what this kind of machine, the day we have it, uh, will solve, but actually you have to put a lot of people together at building this machine and figuring out how, how to engineer, how to do engineering to have control over systems that, that offer you the capabilities of quantum physics to, to process information. So, so yeah, that summarizing it's a new kind of way, new way of computing that in a sense has not, has you know, it's, it's orthogonal to what we do right now. It's using completely different logic 
in not only increasing the the the, the processing power of current uh, processor, but actually changing the logic, like doing something completely different, mm-hmm. and and hoping to to be able to achieve that to solve uh, a larger class of problems. That's really interesting. So I guess. Uh... Does that lead into your research uh, uh, involving qubits and how you can expand the number of qubits in a quantum processor? Uh, okay, so there is different people in the field working on on different problems that have to be tackled in order to to actually build a quantum computer. In, in the case uh, right now, I'm working at Google. There is different proposals on how to build a quantum computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one proposal that is currently given the best um, results, although there's no guarantee that this, this will be the case forever. The one proposal is is called, you know, it's, it's building qubits, so that's the information unit that you will use in a quantum computer uh, to store information and to mani- manipulate information is the equivalent of a bit on, on your laptop, but following quantum, quantum mechanics or quantum physics uh, laws. Uh, you can build qubits in many ways. The one Google is trying to to work with, and other companies and other labs, is what is called a superconducting uh, circuit. So it's a very little device. It's made of some some material that, below some temperature, very very low temperatures, uh, becomes superconducting. Mm-hmm. And um, what you have to understand from this is that this this material has sort of two levels that you can use. So in the same way that in, a, in your laptop, in a classical computer, you have this information uh, unit that is a bit, and it can, you can describe it as two levels, a zero or a one. The qubit is sort of similar, but it's, it's more general than that. Yeah, you, have, you can be in the state of, that you call zero, you can be in the state that you call one, but you can actually be on, on, on what is called a superposition of both. You can have probabilities of actually when you try to see what is going on in the qubit, uh, measure a zero or measure a one. Okay, and, and this is all described with a very clean mathematical um, uh, language. Mm-hmm. So, so I actually forgot the, the original question. I was um, uh, you you asked me about my task here. Yeah. So some people are, are working in the lab to to make this thing work. So these are the people, you know, they spend their entire day in the lab. They are experimentalists. Uh, there is also a team uh, with theorists, and those divide in, in many sub-teams, and, and many people do you know, collaborate in, in, in many of, of them. Uh, in particular, some people work, uh, help the experimentalists to get ideas on, on how to make a, a better machine and better qubits and, and lower the noise and the errors that, that happen there. Other people uh, work on, on developing algorithms, like what will we do the day we have a computer that is good enough to to run algorithms, so they develop algorithms for for useful applications. Um, and other people like me work on I'm working on simulations. So so I've been working for a few years on the simulations of the of quantum systems, and in particular here it applies to the simulation of the quantum computer. So wow. this is a, it is necessary for for different uh, reasons. So first, one reason could be you know when you are developing algorithms. Uh, and you still don't have a good enough quantum computer, you might want to simulate what is going on with the algorithm and learn whether this algorithm will be useful and whether the um, heuristics, so we call a heuristic uh, um, a way of, an, an alg- a heuristic algorithm is an algorithm that, you know, you don't have a strong theoretical basis of why it could work, but in practice it works. So, so it's, kind of like a, 
It's kind of like a test. It's kind of a, a simulator could be testing, yeah, how well your algorithms are doing. So, so I worked a lot on simulators. Another reason why simulators are needed is that in the starting last year and for the next few years, quantum computers are gonna start um, getting better and better and sort of surpassing what you can do with classical computers, with, with your typical computer. In order to, to claim that, to say that you have quantum, we used to call it quantum supremacy, now they prefer to use the term beyond classical computations. Mm -hmm. In order to claim that you have a good enough computer to in some particular tasks, do something that is beyond classical, that is beyond any computer in the world that is not a quantum computer, um, you really have to fight that claim. You have to simulate the task, try to do it with, a, with your typical computer, do the same that a quantum computer is doing, and try to solve it faster and better than a quantum computer. So, so you, you have sort of this competition that when you work on the classical side, simulating what is going on in the quantum computer, you learn what part of the process is hard, what, what part of the process is easy and what parts are hard. And learning uh, about what things are hard, you might get ideas on, on what applications will be only possible to do on the quantum computer. So, you know, at the same time you're benchmarking, you're having this competition between the classical and the quantum computer to see when the quantum computer is surpassing what you can do classically. And while you're studying this, you learn a lot on what applications maybe in the future will be also um, important and also undoable and feasible for a classical computer because you're really struggling to, to make the classical computers and the classical algorithms work better and better in fighting the quantum computer. Um, so that's one thing I've, I've been working on for, for some time. And actually last year we wrote a, a very nice result about Google's quantum computer having enough power to, for one particular task that, that has a technical name, uh, outperform any classical computer in the world. Oh, wow. um, and to, so, that, so that paper came out in, in the journal Nature and that was called, um, we call it the quantum supremacy paper or the beyond classical computation paper. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, we, we did have very efficient classical simulators that we could not keep up with what the quantum computer was doing. Um, so, and actually it's funny because in the, in the last few years, classical algorithms got better and better trying to fight this day that, that would come that the quantum computer would do better than any classical computer. And after the results were published, classical algorithms kept getting better. Um, the quantum computer is still beating them um, but classical computers keep fighting back and gaining terrain on which one is better on, on, on the task. Um, at, the, very, at the same time, the quantum computer is, is getting better and better also. Yeah. That's really cool. Cause like, so at the moment that's very neck to neck. It's very neck to neck. Uh, well, it depends on what you mean by that. There is many applications mm -hmm. that you can use a computer for. This is for a very particular application that actually has is not useful for the moment for any real world problem, but it was a proof of concept. So, you know, at the moment is, if you wanna solve a real world problem, you just take your laptop and, and do it there. It's much more under control. and You don't have to fight, you know, all the problems that quantum computers have, but they mm -hmm. really worked hard to find the one problem where a quantum computer nowadays can do better. And the hope is that, you know, in many years, 
and more and more applications will be on the terrain of the quantum computer. It will do it much better than a classical computer. For the moment, we only know this one task. But as the computers get better, uh, we have a few candidates to, to do better than a classical computer. So that's one thing I've been working a lot on, on these benchmarks, classical simulator versus quantum computer, um, to see where we're at and to see when quantum computers will, will do better than classical computers. The other thing I'm, um, I'm actually learning now, and I'm working on a few projects related to that, is on error correction. So as I've mentioned many times, quantum computers now, when you wanna use them for a real application, they, for them at the moment, they are useless. And the reason is that they have a lot of noise. So you, you write a quantum algorithm, you run it on the quantum computer, and with non-negligible probability, your answer is wrong. And that's because some error occurred in the computation. So this is something classical computers don't suffer from. They are very stable. In you, you turn off your computer and you know that when you turn it on in one year, your memory is exactly like it. as you left it. If you had documents, you have movies, you have anything in, in memory, you'll still be there. Nothing will be corrupted unless you, know, you scratch it or something. So quantum computers, this is not the case. They, they really have errors all the time by by the very nature of, of quantum physics. And so there is ways that in theory could prevent this. And that's called quantum error correction. So, so there is ways in which you can encode the information in a way that is sort of protected. You, you, you can detect later if an error occurred and you can backtrack what happened and you can correct the error. So this is a complicated field. It requires a lot of computation. You basically, side by side you have a quantum computer and side by side you have a very powerful classical computer detecting errors and correcting them mm -hmm. um, so so the 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 way you backtrack uh, these errors and you try to figure out what happened and how to correct the errors so that the quantum computer keeps going you know error free is called decoding and and decoding is a different, difficult task, and it's something I've been working on uh, lately on thinking about how to make more efficient decoders and more performant decoders. So is a decoder kind of like a compiler for a traditional computer? A, no. A compiler would be... A compiler does the following. You give it a code, you give it a, a description of the algorithm you want to run, and it says, okay, this is the description you gave me in the abstract. I have this machine with, you know, with its particularities. So let's try to translate this onto instructions to the machine. So the machine knows what to do at every time. So perform this operation on these two qubits, perform this other operation. And it sort of translates your abstract ideas onto actual instructions for the machine. The, the decoder will, will sort of make these instructions more complicated. They will incorporate also, not the decoder, the whole error correcting protocol, including which includes a decoder, uh, will include in these operations um, and in these instructions that you send it to the machine, what is needed to avoid errors. And that will include a lot of instructions. So measure some particular qubits, uh, send, send the results to a classical computer, process the information, backtrack mm -hmm. where errors happened, send back more instructions to correct the errors and, and so on. You have this feedback, but sure, it is related to a compiler because 
these error correcting instructions have to be compiled at some point, but it's mm -hmm. but they are different different concepts. So I guess it's a bit more like a human brain where you have like multiple aspects constantly in communication with each other. I, I guess I, I guess that is true for for any computer, right? Like when right. your laptop has many components, they have to communicate all the time. You have many bits of you know storing memory all together and, and, and you might apply an operation on these bits depending on what these bits are and so on. So you have very complicated programs that 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 involve a lot of communication and a lot of information sharing between different devices. I see. Yeah, that's that's really cool. So then, how do you think quantum computers could be applied into fields like brain-machine interfaces? Um, or do you think about, that's, or do you think that's a bit uh, far off in the future? I think so. I think so. I know there's a lot of people interested in in more exotic applications for quantum computers, but for the next few years, the best candidates will be, I think will be simulation of, of quantum processes in nature, let's say simulation of a molecule, for example, a simulation of some simplified model that might describe a material, things, things like that, things very down to earth in the sense that they, with a quantum computer, you're trying to describe and you're trying to understand and simulate a quantum process that happens in nature at a very low scale. Mm -hmm. Another, application that is sort of promising for the for the next few years um, could be optimization so so optimization problems arise in many fields in, you know in finance in math in physics and chemistry everywhere uh, quantum computers might be good at that uh, mm -hmm. we we still don't know and there's a lot of heuristics that have to be tested but they might be good at that um, and they might be good some people are trying to see what advantages they could have if you if you try to use them for for things like machine learning, so machine learning is is a field that by itself is full of heuristics everywhere. There is just a lot of formulas, a lot of recipes that work very well, mm -hmm. like neural networks and so on. People don't really understand why they work well, but they do, and a lot of people, including people people at Google, are trying to see you know that if you have a quantum computer, can you actually improve these heuristics and get even better performance? about brain, the relation with brain and, and, and I don't know how you call it, you said brain interface? Or uh, brain machine interfaces. Brain machine interfaces, I'm not sure. I've, I've never thought about that. I see. Yeah, so how would you measure the power of a quantum computer? Because I know with traditional computers, you can measure like clock speed, uh, RAM, mm -hmm. but how do you do that with a quantum computer? It's still, I would say, it's still not well defined. The, you know, you need a metric. You need to to define something that tells you how good a quantum computer is doing, and right. that by nature depends on what application you 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 want it for. So for classical computers, for so you take a supercomputer, the the biggest computers on earth, the typical way to rank them is to ask, okay, who can do more operations per second. Mm -hmm. who can do more, they call it flops, floating point operations per second. And the reason is that a lot of applications, their performance is very correlated to that. So if you want to solve uh, huge systems of equations, for example, that arise in, in many fields, and it, you know, you use math to describe your problems and eventually you end up with, a, with 
huge equations that you have to solve. Mm -hmm. So um, how fast you're going to solve them is correlated to how many operations per second your supercomputer has. In the case of the quantum computer, it is not as simple as that. It depends on what application you will want to solve. Um, with the quantum supremacy experiment, um, people at Google proposed to use a very particular metric, and that is um, how good, how big of um, of a quantum program can you run? and still mm -hmm. getting a signal that you did it correctly, that you know, in a percentage of the cases, it was the right answer. So you had low enough errors that even for a really big quantum program, you still had low enough errors that you could see the right answer sometimes. So that's a very ad hoc definition, mm -hmm. but it worked in that case. In other cases, it could be you know, how big of a molecule can you simulate or how, mm -hmm. how big of a problem, you know, optimization problem can you solve? But what I want to convey is that it's not as straightforward as, as just measuring, um, you know, how many operations can you do per second. Um, there has been other, other metrics to propose to see how powerful a quantum computer is. And in any case, that in any metric that people have uh, proposed, there is a few things that arise that, you know, a few things that you want to make better to have a better quantum computer and everybody agrees on that. So mm -hmm. more qubits, having more qubits that you can control in your lab, in your very delicate quantum computer makes your computer more powerful. Um, having lower error rates makes your computer more powerful. So every time you apply a, a, an operation, which is called a logical gate, or a quantum logical gate, it, it, there is a chance of error. So if that chance, if you are able to make it lower and lower so that most of the times it does the correct thing, mm -hmm. uh, that's better for you. So it's correlated, correlated to number of qubits, to error rates. You know, you want lower error rates. And it's correlated to um, how many logical operations you can apply in parallel. So if you're applying a logical operation on these two qubits, can you apply one at the same time on these two? Or do you have to wait until this one is done and then apply this one? And so, and so your program becomes much longer and you know, when you could really compress it and make, and, and make many things happen in parallel. So, so there are several things that you want to improve to make it more powerful, but a clean way of combining all of them so it just gives you a number and you can rank your computer is, is still not settled. It is not straightforward. I see. So there still has to be a lot of innovation to happen before you can actually have a defined uh, parameter to measure quantum computing. I'm not sure if innovation or just people agreeing on a metric mm -hmm. or maybe the day there is useful applications, you know, the computers are good enough to have a useful application. Maybe that is the starting point of a, of a standard that, you know, how big of these, how big an instance of this problem can you solve so then you can rank them. I don't know. Maybe that is the case uh, or, or maybe it's just a matter of different companies, you know, going their own way and not agreeing on what the metric should be. Because of mm -hmm. course, each company is going to tell you, okay, my computer is the best because in this metric, it does better. And then the other company has a different metric that their computer is better for. And so nobody wants to agree on, on a standard. Yeah, I don't know where, where it's going to come from, but definitely it's going to be easier in a few years once it is more clear what is useful, what is not. Um, 
and people, you know, start agreeing on, on what is better, what is worse. Yeah. So I, I guess out there is a lot of information about uh, why, how powerful quantum computers actually are. So then, how do you, how would you say they compare to like traditional uh, processors? Do you think they're on par? They could like do our daily tasks, like browse the internet and stuff, or do you think that they're going to stay in that very uh, research specific tasks? Yeah, yeah, by by no means. Okay, so so there's two things. One one thing is theory. One thing is is what they promise mm -hmm. and what in theory they could do, and the other thing is is what they in practice do and how. You know how hard it is to make a computer that behaves well. So in theory, if you just ask a complete theorist, they, this person has no interest in building a quantum computer. They just tell you, okay, I'm a mathematician. Give me the rules of quantum computers. Give me the processing, the rules by which the classical computer processes information, the same for a quantum computer, and let's compare them. In theory, the quantum computer is can do everything a classical computer can do efficiently plus more things, okay? So in theory, oh, wow. it is strictly better. Mm -hmm. In theory, it, it could solve anything you solve with your laptop and more things that you could not solve with your laptop efficiently. Now in practice, that is, of course, nowadays not the case <laughs> um, because, you know, your laptop is doing things very well just because it has no errors. It's just very quickly and very cheaply um, and with, 100% guarantee that it will give you the correct answer every time you run it. You you go to your internet browser, you type a website, and most likely nothing goes wrong. Mm -hmm. So um, that task, yeah, uh, there is no point in trying to do that when a computer first because you, it's already done by the classical computer, and second because it has so many errors, it's, it's, it's unthinkable of to to be that stable right now. I see. Um, so the, the priority is to get it working very well and to get algorithms that classical computers could, could not even imagine to run for problems that you cannot solve with classical computers. So, so even if they could one day solve problems that classical computers can solve, the priority is to get into the realm of the ones that they, they cannot solve. Mm -hmm. um, Right, so, so as I say, there's two answers to the same question. In theory, they are strictly better. They can solve the same things plus more. In practice, they are so unstable and, and you know, it's super hard to lower the error rates and it's going to be very hard to actually correct errors so there's zero errors. Um, the priority will be to get, to, to get them performing on, on the side of problems that classical computers cannot solve. So, so they, they could sort of complement each other. That's really interesting. So then when do you think we'll actually reach the point where, let's say a laptop could just have a quantum processor in it? Right, so there's no, I think there's no date for that. And the, so there's two reasons. First one, we don't know when we'll have a quantum computer, no matter if it's a laptop or, you know, it's on a super futuristic lab and it's very hard to build. We, we don't know when that will happen. And second, the technologies that we have right now that are doing best uh, don't work well in, in your, say, in your room, in your room temperature. In, I see. With the, you know, the, it would not work on a laptop. Uh, right now, the quantum computers that are working best are frozen to, to almost zero Kelvin in a very specialized lab 
with very complicated electronics around. They're like a huge thing for a tiny chip. You have to build a huge thing with a lot of lines that control it and so on. So, so most likely the first thing that happens, if something happens, the first thing that happens will be a, a quantum computer or a few quantum computers that are very expensive and that live on some, you know, Google service servers or maybe some other company offers this service, they are sitting on some very specialized lab and you connect to them through the cloud. And so, you know, you have this problem, I don't know, you, you want to simulate some, you're working on, on pharmacology and you need to simulate some particular molecule uh, to understand how it behaves. So you will write code for the quantum computer to simulate this molecule. You will send that code through the to the internet, on the cloud, it will run on the quantum computer that is very far from where you're sitting, and then the results come back. I okay, see. So, so, yeah, we will not have quantum computer laptops or something like that for, for a very long time, and I don't know if ever. So the first thing will, will, will be to have very specialized machines for, for, you know, that you can access through the cloud. And I guess that's the first step for any field, just having like one working product and then you can expand on it later. That's pretty exciting. That's how it was with, with the first computers. They mm -hmm. occupied an entire room. You had to go there and program there and run things and then get your results back. Um, and eventually they got miniaturized and we all have one. Now uh, here that's going to be the case, but further the conditions under which they work are not... Uh, you know, not comparable to, to the conditions and which your laptop works. Because they, as I said, they are, they are frozen down to almost zero Kelvin and, and they need a lot of controlling electronics. I see. So mm -hmm. I guess uh, this kind of ties back later to back your education. Um, mm -hmm. Did you ever take any computer science courses or like how did you go from physics to quantum computing? So... Yeah, actually, if you look at any research team right now in quantum computing, most of the people, mm -hmm. I would say, come from physics. So it, it is called quantum computing. It has to do with computation. And the end goal is to perform very efficient computation for some problems. Mm -hmm. um, but most people come from physics. And, and the reason is that the field came out of physics. Came out, the first ideas, uh, it was physicists that, that had these ideas. And the people that push the, the field forward usually were physicists and, and as I said then, then chemists and computer scientists and mathematicians started jumping in and, and helping a lot and, and you know contributing to the field from many perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, so currently I think the, the, it, that is still the case most likely the people that work on quantum computer will come from physics but there is already more of a push to make it a bigger thing within quantum computer science. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people that study computer science are very interested in in in, in quantum computing. Yeah. In my case, I studied physics, pure physics. Um, I did take a couple of courses in computer science, but they were more related to not you know not theoretical computer science and quantum computing or anything like that. They were related to just you know learn how to code probably in C plus plus or things like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, really interesting. Yeah, and. And there has been a push in the last decades, maybe, to bring physics closer to, to computer science in the sense that, 
you know, physical phenomena can be understood as computational phenomena in the same way that how a quantum computer is working can be seen as, you know, processing information. Mm-hmm. But, but, but yeah, but yeah, but that came all from the field of physics. I see. So yeah, you can really say that physics and mathematics were the fundamental sciences in normal computing and then now quantum computing. Um, sorry, what do you mean by that? Physics and mathematics are the, are the fundamental sciences. Yeah. And then, yeah, I guess, and, and computer science builds on physics. You know, you, you have to build a system. And then once you have a stable enough system, you can just forget what physics is happening there. You just learn computer science and you know your device will respond properly to whatever you do without bothering to understand right. what, what is going on. Yeah, that, that is correct. And quantum computer, hopefully, quantum computing one day uh, is in the same situation. You know, if you use a quantum computer, you, if you program a quantum computer, you, you don't have to know what, what is going on uh, under the table. You don't have to know uh, what physics are going on down there. You just think of it as a, as a computer. You just program it, it gives you results, and, and that's it. That's awesome. That's correct. But it's true that the more math you learn, the, the closer, you know, the better you're going to be at the field. In particular, all quantum, computer, uh, all quantum computing and you know, quantum physics, everything is based on, on linear algebra. So the more you learn about linear algebra, uh, the better understanding you, you'll have of what the math behind it is and, and how these algorithms are working. I see. Yeah, that's really cool. So I guess anyone out there who's going into um, physics or mathematics, that's a pretty easy path to go into quantum computing. I think so. If if by easy you mean a natural path, I I think so. You know, if you if you're always up to date with what's going on in the field and and seeing what the current problem, the research field is always the same. Like you. There's a lot of problems that you have to solve in order to get to the end goal. So if you're up to date, you know where to contribute, where there is an unsolved problem that maybe you can think of, think about and solve and so on. Um, yes, most likely you will be able to participate in and contribute in research here. If you, if you take a look at where the field is and then you have a physics background or a math background or a chemistry background and, and you try to contribute on, on, on these unsolved problems. Yeah, that's correct. In, and easy can mean another thing, and, and that is, you know, are there, are there jobs to work on this? Yes. Or is it just a, a theoretical problem that, okay, it's cool, it's there, but nobody cares about it. And currently, it's a very good time to, right now, it's at the point where companies got into this. It used to be just a research lab, universe, research university thing. And now companies jumped in because they saw that it's the time to invest money to really make it happen, to bring it from paper and theoretical ideas and maybe small, very small proof of principle experiments to really make it happen and build a real computer that solves real things. So right now, in terms of jobs, it's, it's, it's really expanding. Yeah. That's awesome. So then because there are so many opportunities open, opening up, how do you think high school and undergrad students can get involved in this field? Um, for a high school, I'm not talking from experience because uh, when I was in high school, I, I, I had never heard of this, of this, but I know there is efforts to out, outreach efforts to high schools. Mm-hmm. For example, Google had some, some quantum computing camp last year 
And from what I heard, it was very successful. Like, you know, they did a survey afterwards and high schoolers were, most of the vast majority of them were very happy with the, with the camp. So, so, you know, if in your high school there is some event going on or, or you know of some event, maybe not in your high school, but, you know, you get to know about something for your age and for your, your academic stage, and definitely jump on that. It's probably awesome. very accessible. It's probably for, for your background. Mm-hmm. In undergrad, um, it's already, it's more straightforward. I would say you have a better background, better math background, better physics background. You can start reading by yourself and, you know, read a book on quantum computing. There's probably already a course on quantum computing in your undergrad. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably some professor, if you, if you study on a research university, some professor will be working on quantum computing and you can probably talk to, talk to them, start collaborating in research. And, and as everything, the best way to do it is, is to, um, is to put it put it to practice. So so if you know someone that is working on this, like some professor, for example, definitely go talk to them and try to collaborate and and, and try to get into some research project. In in high school, that's usually not the case. So I would say the best way is to try to jump into one of these outreach uh, events mm-hmm. and also just look online for there is resources for high schoolers to learn quantum computing at the level of a high schooler, of course, you're missing a lot of math and physics to, to learn, learn in full detail, but there is right. definitely a good, that's definitely a good start. Yeah, th- th- that's really exciting just to see that, yeah, there are some really high-level fields that are really opening up to the pretty young students in high school. I think so, yes. And, and it's a new-ish field. You know, it's not a super established field. It's a new-ish field. So really... The, um, the results in the field are surprising sometimes. Like maybe, you know, people have thought something for like seven years and then an undergrad mm-hmm. comes up with an idea that, that, that changes things. For example, like there is a lot of surprises and there is a, a lot of opportunities for, for having an impact because just because it's such a new field and, and, you know, many things are not settled, many things we don't know how they're going to they're gonna go. So, so a lot of people can make an impact. That's awesome. Yeah. So I guess kind of like, how did you select the type of internships that were important for your career path? Like, how did you choose what type of internships and projects to do just to get to Google? So, okay, my end goal was not getting to Google. My, my end goal was, I was doing a PhD on, on a related topic. And I, I really liked one computer from what I had Read and from you know the relation it had to what I was doing, um, so the, but but I had this problem that I had never done something really really on, on the field of quantum computing. So I thought, okay, I the best way to do it is is getting an internship. Um, I at a conference I met the the at a very big physics conference that happens every year. I met uh, people that worked in, in the NASA quantum computing lab. So I talked to them. I asked them, I directly asked them, do you offer internships? Because I want to I wanna get into this field. And they say, okay, send us your, your CV. Uh, a few weeks later, I sent it after the conference. We had inter- interviews and, and they said, okay, I, we think that, you know, your background is good enough in a related topic that we think that your background will be very helpful for, for our team. So let's try it out. So I went to the NASA team for three months. That's awesome. Um, and then I was, um, I was, I think at the right time because that's NASA collaborates a lot. This team collaborates a lot with Google. 
Google mm-hmm. was planning this beyond classical experiment to show for the first time that a quantum computer does something that is beyond any classical computer, at least for one task. So the NASA people were working on this too. So I got involved in that. I ended up working a lot, collaborating a lot for not only the internship, but after the internship with, with still with the people at NASA, with the people at Google. And then I ended up being an intern at Google. I, I had been working with them for, for, for a year already after that, before that. So I went to mm-hmm. Google and after that, it was time for me to, to finish the PhD and they ended up offering me a job and, and that turned out well, but I think it was a bunch of coincidences. You know, I was very excited and I really wanted to work on quantum computer because I thought it was so cool. Mm-hmm. So, so in the end, the internships, I, I guess I did the right internships to, to end up working on a nice group. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I chose them. I was, you know, I, I knew of many groups that were doing quantum computing and I, I would have been very happy to, to work with, with, with a few of them. And in the end, I ended up working with the NASA people and Google people, which was very positive experiences. Yeah, that's awesome. So you, your final internship kind of like led right into your job. So it must have been a really nice flow for you. Right. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, you have to think that for companies and for national labs and uh, NASA lab and so on, mm-hmm. internships are their I would say, if not the primary, maybe one of the most important ways they have to recruit people. So, you know, it's a perfect way. You learn, they get to see you. If, they, if you mutually like each other, it's, it's a perfect combination for, for, you know, joining the team full-time afterwards. That's awesome. So I guess let's, uh, a final question would be, how important were your papers in, in, like, one, progressing yourself through your education, and two, uh, just finding a job, finding an internship, how important are papers? So papers, if you do research, are very important. Um, mm-hmm. If you are planning on doing research, you know, in, in academia, if you planning to, to stay in a university, study a PhD, after a PhD, do a postdoc, and after that, be a professor, uh, you, you need to publish good and a lot of papers. So that's really important. I see. If you are trying to to go to a research lab, but you know more in industry, more on the on the industry side, mm-hmm. papers are very important, um, but maybe it's slightly less important. It's still very important. And when you don't know the people, when you when you haven't done an internship, because after you've done an internship, you work with the team for a while. They know you. They know you work well, you like what they do. Um, and you know, maybe they know of many projects that you've been doing that are still not published. So your publications don't count, but they really know you've been working on something. So things get easier. If you are just a name for a person, if you haven't worked with them, you your, your window towards the, the public, your, your the way they're gonna know who you are and what work you've done, is your publications. So publishing good and, and many papers is, is very important. Yeah, that's awesome. So just before we wrap up, uh, is, what, is there anything else you want to say to anyone else out there who is interested in quantum computing or just physics in general? Um, I would say there's many things to say, but I would say, you know, try to work on 
as, as anything in life, try to work on a on a field and, and a problem and problems try to solve. You like research problems within that field that you enjoy solving. You don't do don't do something you don't like, then you'll be miserable. But then mm-hmm. we among those problems, try to look for the ones that will have the most impact. And the reason is that even if you like some problems, if if at least for my personality, if they if you are the only person interested in that, mm-hmm. is either people have overseen this and you should tell them this is an important problem or they already thought about this. They thought it was a, okay, maybe interesting, but not useful problem. So, so they neglected it. So try to look for the problems that are really gonna impact some things. And, and in particular quantum computing, I think to me is one of those. It's very cool. It has a lot of theory. It, it's, it could get pretty abstract and so on, but at the same time, it has very direct maybe not short-term, but mid-term application. So it's clearly, if you do good work, you're gonna have a good impact. And, you know, beyond the impact, uh, having having the chance to have impact is really motivating. So, so, so for me, for my kind of personality is what keeps me working. Other people are, are more, more into, you know, their own problems and, and don't care mm-hmm. about the impact so much. Yeah, I think that that'll be really, really helpful for anyone who's really interested in this field. And I certainly learned a lot about quantum computing today. So yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for for inviting me. This was fun. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you, Cameron. Bye. All right. That's all for this week and this episode. I really hope you guys learned a lot about quantum computing, especially from... Uh, Dr. Villalonga, his uh, research is really interesting, and I was actually really interested in quantum computing, so this episode was very interesting for me. Uh, also, if you're enjoying these episodes, and you can always check some of the older episodes. Um, I've done a couple interviews. This really cool one was with Dr. Ken Farley, the lead scientist for the Mars 2020 rover. I definitely recommend checking that out. Um, and then there's also a few more episodes that are definitely worth listening to. Uh, Also, if you really enjoy this podcast and you think there might be some other people you know who would enjoy it as well, feel free to share this with them. I think uh, the bigger our community is, the more we can learn together. And of course, you can always join our community on Instagram at camshowpodcast for exclusive updates. And you can always see whenever a new new episode is out. And if you want to be even more invested, you can always uh, put your email down below and you'll get email updates right when the new episodes are launched. And of course, until the next time, make sure you stay curious and ad astra.